You're about to enter seventh heaven. If you like this pod, then you can show your support by rating us five stars and hitting that little subscribe button to help us climb the pod rankings and spread the sevens gospel. If you're looking for extra content, you can go to our YouTube page or our social channels, Twitter and Instagram, our handle at seventh heaven pod. Again, like, subscribe, share, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome back to your celestial one-stop pod for all things rugby seven seventh heaven. Yes, that's right. With the boys back on UK soil, it's a little bit easier to track them down. So consistency is the name of the game till the end of the year. And we're back with an episode in the week that should have been the Dubai Sevens. It should have been the restart of the 2020 World Series. But sadly, COVID has robbed us of those desert treats. But I do have two delights here with me. It is Mitch and Chip. I'm Burnsy and we're back. Burns, it's good to hear from you. Um, yeah, it's a sad time when uh, you hear the I'm a celebrity jingle and you're not jetting off to Dubai. I normally hear it. Bam, 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 bam. And then next minute in Dubai, in the lovely sun, getting bronze and golden, um, laying out in the desert. Uh, but yeah, staying in the UK this year um, and getting some grafting. Mitch, how are you, son? Yeah, I mean, I'm just excited that with the Dubai Sevens date being mentioned again, obviously it's where we would be had things uh, been normal. It's another opportunity for us to hear about Burnsy's greatest ever rugby achievement. Take it away, Burnsy. <laughs> uh, I wasn't going to bring it up this early in the pod. I was going to bring it up at some stage. I think the Premier in paperweight is knocking around here, but there's going to be plenty of time to reminisce about the glory days of the Dubai Sevens. But first and foremost, I want to hear Chip. How's your, how's your second week at school? Second week at school's good, mate. Um, Queens, the lads are being sound, um, settling in a bit more now. Um, yeah, not being bullied. Um, went for a, went for a big time coffee this Anyone week. Me I was the only one yet? at the coffee club. No one's giving me a wedgie, but I was the only one at the coffee club without um, international caps, so that was quite cool. In the back of the rangey. Well, international fifteens caps, anyway. International fifteens caps, yeah. Proper rugby, they call it. Is that what they? Is that what they call it? They call it proper rugby to your face. I, I we can go straight into a uh, Chippy's Law if you want. Um, I absolutely hate it. Insert jingle here. Insert jingle here. That's just typical what it is. Get him walking. They don't like it. Walking, Campbell. If you've got it in bottle, if you've got it in bottle, Campbell, it should walk. That was absolute diabolical. He's gonna be yellow card. And whenever we're speaking to anyone and you say anyone in or out of rugby, mainly out. Oh, so you, do you play rugby? Yeah. So who do you play for? I play for England Sevens. Oh, so um, how's that? Yeah, good, good, blah, blah. Um, have you ever played proper rugby? Okay, cool. Terrible. <laughs> Terrible. For those Happens lads. every time. Those lads and ladies. Every time. Every single time. Do you know time. what's worse than that, though? We, we've probably talked about this before. We're not, you know, we're not annoyed at it, but we'll talk about it again. Um... The one we used to get a lot, people who don't really know that much about rugby, which is fine, but I fielded the same question a lot. So is that age group? Are you age group stuff? Are you age group? We're not, no, no, we're the men's team. All oh, right. 
So what do you what like what clubs do you play for? That's the next. That's the follow up question. And like, no, we don't. We don't. We just play sevens. And oh, okay. And what? what so is that professional? You like, yeah, it is. And it's great to educate people. But I did not think we'd be fielding those questions. When? How long has sevens been professional? Bernsey, you're the stat man. How long was sevens professional? No idea. No idea. You were probably the first ones to sign the contracts with the RFU, weren't you? 2000, at least 2010, I'd say. So we're yeah. talking 10 years. I mean, come on. I don't get the age group stuff, though. So what? They think that you're like a mid-20-year-old man bragging about playing for England under sevens once. That's the kind of thing that well, I brag about. It's the kind of thing you do brag <laughs> they be, about. They basically, they basically say, they've, they've seen Mitch in a uh, changing room with his calves out, and they, th- they think, oh, he must be like 15, 16. He'll grow into them. I thought you were going to say there was something else out then, Chip. I was like, that's not appropriate for the pod. We've got young listeners. No, no. <laughs> This is not my bag, um, baby. Burnsy, baby. People in glass houses. We, <laughs> no, we, we, right, we completely, de- we've, we completely deviated from the original question, which was asking whether Chippy had been bog plushed by Mike Brown yet. But it seems to be a yes on that. I'm going to take it as a yes <laughs> after that Range Rover incident. <laughs> but what, what things have you learned in your next week of professional 15s rugby in the Premiership? And I should clarify as well that you have played Premiership rugby before. I made it sound last week that you were a new kid on the plot, but you're an old wizened hound, aren't you, Chip? That's it. I think um, some of the young, when I'm coming in, the young lads think I'm, think I'm a young lad as well. And they're trying to tell me what to do. And I'm like, hang on a second. I've been here before, lads. Chill out. You should just start dropping in your experience into conversation, Chip. Next time you go for a coffee, um, I don't know, just, just drop in casually. They need to know. They need to know. Just start talking. Just be one of those old boys that talks about like the good old days of rugby stamping on people see you're in a you're in a bit of a tricky situation chip you're kind of like the postgrad on your course at university you're the old guy at the back of the lectures learning everything answering all the questions correctly but then also trying to slip in with the cool crew for pints at the student the union the mature student so like how you negotiate yeah how are you negotiating that whole space because everyone knows that those guys are dickheads <laughs> Van Wilder. <laughs> has anyone has anyone actually thought you're in the academy yet? Has anyone like called you Oye Cad or anything like that? No, I um I've strictly I've, I've I've made sure that was not the case. I um yeah, no, I haven't had that. I've got nothing to say about that. Thank you. <laughs> I'm not for ACAD bashing, you know. ACAD lads, they, they get a bad rep. They get hammered anyway, like by the coaches, and they get hammered like if they do the slightest thing wrong. And you forget that their brains haven't finished developing yet. So like they're expected to retain all this knowledge and be like right on it. And their brains are still growing. True. Tough. It's hard, li- hard lines. Uh, so Quinn's had a pretty rough start to the Prem on Friday night against the champions. We're not going to go into that. But were you at the stadium? Were you in the mix with all the replacements, warm up, the tunnel, clapping, cheering on the boys? Uh, I didn't do the warm up, but I was in the stadium. I wore every single piece of uh, Harlequin's kit I had to make sure I got in. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think I was one of the only ones there without the actual Adidas face mask. But that's fine. That's fine. You know, it, it's not a proper replica. So I, I just had my medical one. Um, yeah, we all sat in the, in the stands. There was like, you had to be seated a bit f- further away from each other. But yeah, it was like it. It was actually like a weirdly good atmosphere, if that makes sense. Even though there was only like both sets of uh, benches and like media people there. Um, it was actually quite exciting, like watching live sport again, like at the sports. I'm one of the lucky few in the country. Yeah, it was quite an eerie experience. It was, it was weird, yeah. Especially like 
with they ran out and there was like fireworks and flames and stuff and I was a bit like it's like it'd have been so cool because it was a Friday night game it'd have been so cool if there was fans there and the atmosphere would have been mega um, so yeah it was a, it was surreal there is hope isn't there they announced uh, that fans are coming back so does this mean we've got to listen to you shouting around the stadium soon Burnsy they're gonna let me loose again Bojo how funny was Bojo's speech last night it is the season to be jolly but also the season to be jolly careful did you write a script? Did you say that? That's Did you write his script? That's the kind of thing you'd say. I'd love to be a political script writer. Yeah, well, they're talking about letting up to 4,000 people into stadiums from December the 2nd. So, fingers crossed that London Irish are going to call me back in for the game against Sale on the 6th, I think. And then there's European fixture as well. So, yeah, hopefully it's all going to be changed. They're going to be back on the mic. So, pretty exciting for me. Um, I forgot to say the you know the the S and C coach at Quinns is a um, world's strongest man. Yeah, it's um, Adam Bishop, is it? He's huge, mate. What sort of bits he got you doing in the S and C then? Nothing like out of the ordinary at the moment. Um, it was like quite a good session today, but he's just a big man, isn't he? Like when he says he says do trap by deadlift, I I'll, yep, no dramas. Not that I'd disobey anyway. But do you know what I mean? When he says something, it's like, okay. <laughs> so if it's all normal stuff then, why do you look like someone's dropped an atlas stone on your face, Chip? That's years. That's years in the game, Bernsey. As I keep telling these young lads, this is, a, this is work. This is work rate. This is winning the shoulder height. This is getting in there first. This is winning the race. <laughs> I love the thought of you sitting down the youngsters, the boys in the A-Cad, the guys still at school. You sat them down and saying, listen, boys. This is what it's all about. <laughs> I go to him and say, how, do you know how many stitches I've had in this face? <laughs> said, listen, which, which one do you want to know about How right many now? stitches have you had? This one. How many this stitches one? have you had? <laughs> this one. These ones. These ones. These ones. You, I'll tell you, lad. Uh, this is work great. <laughs> Best get walking, get wet and all, oh, say they. Is this a good time for us to do our weekly Burnsy bashing? You're like Todd from Wedding Crashes with that fringe line on the front there. <laughs> Let me paint you. <laughs> Come to you this time courtesy of our, one of our London Royals teammates, Chip, Jimmy Haley. Do you give us permission? Is that okay? Because I know Hit you're fragile. It doesn't matter. So I obviously reposted your uh, Instagram, Burnsy, just trying to drum up some interest for your amazing challenge, which we'll give another shout out. Burnsy running eight and a half miles a day for 30 days and Epic get behind him raising money to to feed um, children who need it. Um, he's doing very well. How many how many days in, Burnsy? This is day 13 today. 110.5 miles in good the bank. In well done. So days. he's doing a good thing. And I, I'm giving I'm I'm pumping up your tires now to then promptly deflate them. So I put you on my story. One of the lads who's never met you but listened to you on the pod. He's a very he's a keen listener, new to the pod. Um Hopefully he's been through the whole back catalogue of season one. And he said, I don't know what I expected this guy to look like, but it wasn't this. Two laughing emojis. So I said, I got excited at that point. I said, haha, what was the image you had of him? He said, haha, I don't know. He just sounded so proper on the podcast. I didn't think he was going to look like a homeless junkie. <laughs> <laughs> That's there's, there's more there's more he said he, yeah this is great from jimmy really good he said 
He looks like the kind of guy who would ask a stranger if he can have their leftovers at a restaurant. <laughs> or the kind of guy who brings his own silverware out to eat. <laughs> <laughs> Very good, Jimmy. Uh, brilliant from Jimmy. Please, Thanks. if anyone else has got their opinion on Burnsy, yeah. please fire it in. <laughs> yeah, we like as much feedback as possible, particularly if it's hammering Burnsy and his appearance. Uh, but not to the seventh heaven pod because Burnsy is the only one who's got access to that. <laughs> Sounds like it's open season on my looks then for all listeners and anyone who's got social media accounts. So yeah, keep chiming in. One night in heaven, one night in heaven. Right, moving on, guys, to a tournament that should have been this week, one that's very, very dear to my heart for reasons that we've covered in great depth over the year. And um, one that I know is special to you is the Dubai Sevens. It kicks off the World Series every year. Last year was its 50th edition, and this year is the first time in 51 years that it won't be taking place due to COVID. Sad times for you guys. Uh, yeah, it's sad, it's sad for the tournament. I didn't realise it's, it's... I actually wasn't aware that its history was so extensive. It's definitely one of the notable tournaments on the World Series. I mean, obviously, they've all got their own identity and their own history, but Dubai, probably second only to Hong Kong, is, is one that really stands out for people um, because it is well, in terms of participation, it's the only one really where there's other tournaments going on on a, on a good scale um, alongside the World Series. Um, and the the Invitational, the Open Tournament, has grown into probably or arguably the most competitive Open Tournament that I know of, um, possibly in the world. So, um, yeah, it's really cemented itself as a, a notable stop um, and a notable sporting event in the sporting calendar. I mean, Dubai Sevens is a really fascinating one. You mentioned there, Mitch, about having all the open and the invitational teams, all the amateurs, the shags, the bin juice, like myself out there, pretending like they're pros for a week. And boy, is it magic being out there and playing as an amateur. But just looking at England, you know, you've come really close in times gone by. It's clearly a tournament that resonates with the team. I didn't realise this until I was doing a bit of research, but you've come third the last four Dubai Sevens. You were runners-up in 2015, losing to a fantastic Fiji side. And the atmosphere in the stadium for anyone who's never been there, it is like being at an England home game, to be honest. There's so many expats out there. Everyone's so charged up to see England prosper. You guys must love it. It's an amazing atmosphere to play in. I think the evening games in Dubai are one of like my favourite games to play in. Like when it's it's cooler in the evenings, the lights banging, everyone's out there, had a couple of drinks, enjoying themselves responsibly. Um, Ooh, I think the, the memory sure of crowds that. is making me a bit emotional. Making myself making me a bit emotional now. Um, no, it was it's, it's always an amazing tournament to play in. Um, yeah, played in that two thousand. Mitch, you played in that two thousand fifteen final as well, yeah. didn't you? I actually weirdly was doing some research yeah. earlier and stumbled across that on YouTube and uh, had a little watch. Actually, a little watch of that against Fiji. Frustrating. Can you hear me saying to Rodders, "Do you want me to lift you?" And he says, "No," three times. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I didn't watch the whole thing. It lost when he lost the first. He lost the first kickoff and I said, Rodders, do you want me to lift you on the next one? He's like, no, no, I'm fine. Next one, straight on him. Lost it again. How's that? Like, <laughs> do you want me to lift you? No, I'm fine. Lost it again. Oh, God. There's the game. And that's the ball game. What is, you can't, I think it was that game, game where I got stepped you by Jerry. And like, I, honestly, it was like a, a, a magician's act. Like genuinely, he was in front of me and then he was behind me and I don't know how he did it. 
Uh, it was that that was the sensation as I experienced it. He's got the Queen's nose. He paused time and it was a, it was a Queen's early. nose job for sure. Um, but yeah, mate, you Burnsy, you're bang on the atmosphere. Crikey, like I've never won there. I'd love to. I'd love to get the chance to go back, play there, and try and claim the title. And it's it's a one that everyone loves to win because it's the first one. So it's always it's always like extra juiced up. And I honestly think that's where some of the best rugby takes place. Um, I, I don't know why. I guess partly the conditions, which are pretty pretty decent um, for rugby. It's nice and dry, and it's hot, but actually compared to some of the places, not too bad. Um, and it's just, I don't think everyone's just so buzzing to be there that they they play their best stuff sometimes. I've got a theory on it as well, I think, because it's the first one of the season. We've had a bit of an off-season, a bit of a pre-season. The majority of boys are kind of like fit again, fully fit, not carrying those little niggles that you get throughout the season. You've not got like people like soldiering on through it. You've not got the injuries that come in the season. So the squads haven't dipped yet. So you've got like, you kind of, best 12 or best 13 out there at, without knocks. Um, and as, although there's a touch of rust the first couple of games, that quickly blows off. And I'm, I'm with you. I feel like some of the rugby we played out there is, is, is like being good over the years. And I think that's maybe where we've been. It also best. feels amazing for us because we go from training over here in the cold and the wet, not being able to catch a ball because it's so slippery and your hands are so cold. And then you go out there and instantly you're like, oh my God, I can grip the ball. It's amazing. Fizzing passes around, just feeling like rugby is the easiest thing. You're not slipping over because the ground's so wet, like a good purchase. It's a lovely feeling it going out there end of November, December time. Um, God, this is dangerous. This reminiscing and this thinking about it, Chip. It's only going to send us downhill emotionally. Um, but we've been lucky to have the times we've had. You're allowed to get doughy and eyed about this, guys. You know, it's a big change this year with the World Series. But coming back to the quality of rugby that gets played at the Dubai Sevens, do you think as well there's an element that you touched on it, Chip, about the teams being refreshed, but also everyone's an unknown quantity again. It's the start of a new season and you're testing each other's metal. You're seeing what sort of structures teams are putting into place, who's up for it, who fancies it. It really sets the marker for the season ahead. It's interesting, though, isn't it? Because actually what happens in those early tournaments, uh, I mean, I don't know, you'd have to get into the stats, but does do you think those are key, the results in those early tournaments? Or do you think really it plays out later on? Because you're right, Chip, you definitely feel at your best going into that Dubai, don't you? You feel, you feel good, you've trained for it, you're like, you haven't, you're not carrying the bumps, the bruises, you've not done the travelling, you're feeling great. Uh, and I just wonder whether actually peaking then or feeling at your best then is is pointless because the real stuff gets done later on. I don't know. I mean, it's probably irrelevant because it's about consistency ultimately. What do you think? It's it's nice to get a good start, but I mean, it's not the be all and end all. I mean, you look at France last year, or you, was it last year? I can't even remember now. Yeah, last season started like a a truck on fire, rolling down the hill, and then ended up bloody falling off, wheels falling off bombing out of a couple of semis bombing out of the group um it's a tough one isn't it um but i would like personally i i love them dubai tournaments because you're like how hard have you worked in the off season not as hard as me this is where we're at let's go france got horsed in the quarterfinals didn't they will muir's famous try try the series last year try the, series. the official yeah. seventh heaven awards yeah have you sent him out his prize yet bernsey have I sent him his prize? Is it the post of the rest of the T-shirts I owe the rest of the listeners? <laughs> the merch. <laughs> yes, the merch. Well, look, 
From one try scorer in Dubai to a man who once upon a time held the record for the most tries with 220 in World Series history. But one thing we can say with a fair degree of certainty is his points tally will never, ever be beaten. 2,652 of them he scored in a glittering England career and a man who won Dubai in 2004, 5 and 10. Big guest coming on the show. It's Ben Gollings. One night in heaven, one night You're like a fine wine. You look, you look amazing. What, what's the secret? Uh, yeah, I know. You don't have to rub your beard. I can see you've trimmed it up. You're looking, out, you're looking outstanding. Sure, that's uh, fine wine. It's aging wine. Um, Beej, you, you haven't met Burnsy, I don't think, but uh, Burnsy is the brains behind the, our podcast um, and he likes to think of himself as the leader of the of the three of us, of the, I, of the three I was of us. Wondering how you guys did it. <laughs> don't, don't, don't. Finally, some respect <laughs> from a man who's wandered by sevens like myself. There's only two of us in the chat. Ben, would you so, like to put some context around that, Bernsey, as to what tournament of the Dubai sevens you you won? I feel like we're living in the age where context and nuance isn't really necessary. So we'll just leave it at that. A couple of Dubai Sevens winners, irrespective of which tournament I've won and which one Ben's won. <laughs> Amazing to have you in seventh heaven. Finally, a genuine point scorer. Instead of dealing with this fifth place in the all-times rankings nonsense. And we won't even touch on Chippy's try scoring record on the series. The Magic 37, <laughs> as it's known. But yeah, Ben, look we got a lot of England Sevens fans who listen to the pod and I guess they'd love to know what you've been up to, what you're doing in Australia. Sure. Well, I mean, since we stopped playing primarily coaching, um, which has uh, added the Sevens flavour of just continuous travel, which has been good. Uh, Sri Lanka, China, US. Why Australia back here? My wife's Australian. So when, um, when I took the role as head of rugby in China, it was probably a safer bet to keep family in Australia than living in China. So we moved back here. Uh, I did a stint back here a number of years ago as well. So it's, it's not unfamiliar territory. And it's, um, it's probably not a bad spot to be, to be honest with you, on the Gold Coast. And now to, I'm, I'm still in the coaching space, uh, a lot of coach consultancy. Um, however, obviously, we all know what uh, trials and tribulations COVID's thrown up. So currently that's uh, no coaching at this stage. Um, but it's been an interesting year. The question I want to dive straight into, Beige, is what's the situation like with the China stuff? I mean, a bit of an unknown entity in rugby. Yeah, look, it was um, it, it was an opportunity to coach um, like a side fully, which I, I hadn't been doing so much in the years prior. And so I took that opportunity. And they're also a genuine prospect for the Olympics. And I think um, you guys know me. I've always wanted to... Uh, I wanted to have a crack at it as a player. And when that was taken away, the opportunity to take a team would have been fantastic. Um, but it was probably just a little bit, I probably didn't get enough time with them to really solidify what could have been a, a real opportunity. Japan were, were ahead at that point and the you know, Japanese are, are very strong and have a great program. But the, you know, they're happy to say next time around, they've just qualified. And I think that's through what we set up there. And Do you speak any Chinese yet, but, uh, Beach? I did, man. I did a little bit because um, I think obviously it's, it is easier to uh, to be able to communicate with them. So it was all your kind of real go-to words. But I'll admit I had a full-time translator, which makes you a bit lazier as well in learning. I think if I was coaching in another language, I'd have to tell the translator to miss some stuff out. Pass your fat bastard. 
<laughs> I mean, just just pass, just pass, yeah, just pass, visit wide. The way in which they contextualize things, it doesn't. What how we say it doesn't actually translate in that way. Does that make sense? So, I was very fortunate. I had a translator who knew rugby, so I had to trust that what he was translating did translate to what I was trying to say. Can't always be sure of it. It was sim- similar when uh, Ben Ryan was coaching Fiji. I swear he'd give a massive team talk and then I'll say a colonist, I would just say, ignore the redhead, let's just keep offloading. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm pretty sure those players had it under control. <laughs> what, what, would be the, uh, what would be the dream coaching job, Beach? Like for if you in, in sevens? I think I've obviously, I think the opportunity to coach your country would be a fantastic opportunity. Um, for me, it, the opportunity was to to try and solidify a spot back on the World Series, really. Um, and I say specifically in the men's game, I've, I've had some really good fun coaching in the female arena and it's been a real big learning curve. But I think being back in the men's game was um, obviously was what I know well. And so I wouldn't have knocked down any opportunity one day would I love to coach England <clears throat> yes um, I think it's always a, a goal having played for them for a long time but uh, <clears throat> that opportunity to be back on the World Series and experiencing it with anybody and I think the challenge of bringing up a team that you know don't have quite what you know I, we you experience with England is also quite an interesting challenge at the same time to make to make those teams competitive it's different coaching challenges while we're on the, I don't, sorry, I don't want to hammer this too much, but I'm interested because uh, Chip and I are both sort of, you know, especially since we haven't been able to play, we've been dipping our toe in the coaching waters, haven't we, Chip? Um, and, and learning as much as we can. But are there any coaches you had along the way when you were playing that you kind of picked up things that you liked or some coaches that particularly stood out from your playing days? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think I was very fortunate with my, my playing days. I experienced... Um, obviously sevens, fifteens at a big level, but also I experienced the global game playing in Australia, New Zealand, Japan. So I got to experience the kind of different flavours of rugby. And I think uh, Robbie Deans in New Zealand was, you know, was just a breath of fresh air to something I'd experienced back in the UK. Now, I'm not going to mention names, but obviously you guys weren't running around at that time. But when I was, it was, um, <laughs> it was a different coaching style, should we say. We call it the old school. Um, and then in Australia as well, I experienced a really good coach. Um, he went on to coach the, the Queensland Reds, Damon Emtage. Um, and I think what I learned through those was just uh, how important it is to be, you know, good with people, not just your knowledge and experience, if that makes sense, within within coaching, because you can know everything. But if you can't get people to, to buy in and, and really um, – want to be the best they can be and they, they genuinely get that feeling from you as a coach you, you're always going to struggle I was just going to say speaking of the best you could be like obviously me and you I played in your last uh, tournament um, and obviously you only got a brief taste of the yeah, magic I, I could realize, offer on the field my last, I apologise for that <laughs> hey, <laughs> sorted me out you were, two, you were two passes before my uh, first touch first try so Beach thank you you, st- you started it <laughs> You started it, um, and uh, a company that we can't name has ended it. But we'll we'll carry on. We'll move on. So, who are the, like the standout players from your career? Who would have known there'd be thirty six more after that as well? Amazing. <laughs> How has it taken you this long to score thirty seven after that? Because that was a while ago. 
2011, in and out, you see, like a yo-yo, in and out of 15s, dipping my toe in, back in the 15s. I'm just keeping the people guessing. Anyway, as I was saying, Beach, who are the most memorable players um, on and off the pitch for you, like top two or three? Except for you three, obviously, two. Oh. Yeah, Burnsy. <laughs> oh, Burnsy will love it that you Please. grouped him in with it. Oh. <laughs> For a moment. The, the I'll take a cap. I'll take a cap. I think, I mean, it goes without saying, and, you know, you guys would, wouldn't have experienced it, but my very first tournament back in 99-2000 in Paris, I played against, um, and obviously watched him growing up. We play, got to play against Cerevi. Um, and... There's no, you know, there's no doubt that that guy was a magician, and back at that time, was still in his prime. It was, it was, it was, it was both fun and not fun at the same time, making <laughs> sense. Um, so I think you can go too far as as to stating he was probably one of them. Um, from an England standpoint, playing with the likes of Henry Paul, um, I think Henry and I hit it off pretty well. Both very similar players. Um, and obviously with his reputation coming from rugby league, that was pretty fantastic. And then there's another guy. Um, I mean, Eric Rush would be another one. Um, he was back with the New Zealand team in those days when it was just a, a team full of studs. Um, but then Amasio Valance was probably another one. Um, and he was kind of like the second Cerebri, but from a Kiwi standpoint, with the most ridiculous dummy that I think nearly everybody in the world of rugby's fallen for and probably still is falling for at this stage. So that's all right. All the lads call me Cerevi Chippai anyway, so <laughs> the white Cerevi. That's it. Hey Ben Ben, you meant you mentioned Henry Paul. Right. His name has come up a number of times from a variety of people on this pod. Not chiefly for his performances on the pitch, but off the pitch. And I would like a bit I would like a bit of transparency about how much of a legend this guy is. <laughs> Well, I mean, if you know rugby and you know rugby league, they're, they're very different. Um, those guys, they definitely, back in those days, played hard and, and then enjoyed enjoyed the social side of the game. And Henry was was not one of them. And, uh, you know, it, the, the amazing thing with Henry, though, is he would, it would never change his performance on the field and his performance in, uh, in training. And so he did, uh, I do remember, and I mean, I won't stitch Henry up here, he won't mind. Commonwealth Games in 2006, uh, we'd, we'd won the silver medal and uh, we were due to fly to Bali for a training camp prior to Hong Kong. And Henry being Henry didn't turn back up at the village, wasn't at the flight <laughs> in, the, uh, in the morning to Bali. And then I think he'd ended up in Sydney, even though we were in Melbourne. And <laughs> then, then, then being Henry said, it's not a problem. I've just paid for my own flight. I'm going to fly straight to uh, Bali. I'll see you guys all there. And sure enough, he did turn up uh, in true Henry style. But um, you, you just had to, I think, again, we, we talk about coaching. You've got to understand your players. If you put Henry in a box, you were never going to get the best out of him. So you just had to, you just had to manage him, but you knew you'd always get your best Henry. You know, I remember rooming with Henry in Hong Kong one of the first times he came and played with us. And it was uh, an interesting experience, should I say, waking up in the morning. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, he's, he, he's a guy, he was, he was pure class and he was probably old school in that regard. But I mean, what a phenomenal player to play with. The Dennis Rodman approach sounds like 
It's got to be done sometimes. It, it does. And I think it's important because ultimately it is about performance on the field. And if, you know, some people need, you know, different releases than others. And it wasn't to say that was always Henry's. Um, he was an, he was a consummate professional at the same time, but you, you had to manage him in the right ways. And I think, you know, Mike understood that um, from, from that perspective. Uh, what, what about you then? What were kind of some of the things that kind of made you tick uh, and got you performing at your best? Uh, I, I was similar in a way. I think when you had a good relationship with a coach, um, I remember Joe Lydon when he came onto the scene and the, the biggest thing I found about him was it wasn't so much about him trying to tell you how to play the game as actually just make you feel really good about who you were and about how good you felt on the pitch. And for me, I think that was really important because I think, as you guys know, the one thing you control is how you play on the field. Um, and you kind of got that side of it, genuinely speaking, after a number of years. Um, not that you you know everything and you always want to improve. The other pieces were, you know, the relaxation, the ability to be able to switch off. I think the big thing with sevens that often can happen, and it's probably changed a bit now, is it's very intense and you're on the whole time. So that ability to be able to find your, your off buttons and particularly after tournaments, yeah, we let our hair down. But I think generally speaking, if we didn't, it would just have been too much. It was that kind of release that, that, that helped. We actually touched on this last week about the importance of having that downtime. How do you, you know, what does professionalism look like in terms of actually balancing the, the on and the off switch? Um, going back to like your approach a little bit as well, then how obviously I've known, we've all known loads of people know you for what you did in sevens. And part of that was the, the points tally. How much of that was a factor when you were playing? Oh, you know, I didn't really consider it at all until it was in 2005. There was, they made the, it was, it was kind of an out of the blue announcement that, oh, we've, uh, you've just set the world record and um, we've got a, uh, it looks a bit like kryptonite, to be honest with you. I don't, I don't even know. I, yeah, I've got it for you. Just... Like Ron Burgundy and the jazz flute. <laughs> this is my, this is my kryptonite. <laughs> nice. So, what's that you're holding up? That what's that you're holding up there, Ben? That is the the kind of trophy that I got re- received for world record for most points. That's pretty cool, though. World record. You've got to be happy with that. I should ask them to update it. Obviously, but they haven't. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I've just got to play for another 10 years or so and then um, I'll have that off you, Beach. <laughs> well, it's been, been set been... there for a reason. But I mean, coming back to your question, it didn't. And I think then it just highlighted kind of like there were certain personal goals and achievements that I could focus on as well as... Because um, I think the more time you play in the game, and obviously mine was over a long period of time, those types of things you know, keep you honest and, and keep you performing, I think, outside of the want to perform for the team and to win. And so they became small little challenges for me. Like towards the end of my career, I'd love to have hit the 3000 mark. I think I was capable, obviously. I was probably only a season away, to be honest, um, at that. Um, and so those kind of landmarks, I think for me, kept me honest with myself in terms of, um, <clears throat> but I didn't really pay huge amounts of attention to it if that made sense and you know I, I did have all three at one point with tries points and conversions but knew that that wasn't going to last for uh forever in a day but you know it's, i think those things do help 
Look, you mentioned how you would have liked to have got to 3,000. You reckon you had it in you maybe with another season. I think for a lot of observers, a lot of fans, your career with England finished rather abruptly. You were 31 years old. Would you agree with that? And, you know, how do you reflect on that now? <clears throat> oh, look, if I speak honestly to it, I 100% agree with it. Um, if I'd have been told I was playing my last tournament for England, I think it would have been a very different Ben Gollings you'd have seen in that regard as to to what the knowledge was as I went into those last two tournaments. I actually had no idea of what was coming to me. Um, and it, 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 it shocked me, to be honest with you. And it kind of, um, I, I genuinely set out a stall to say, well, the Olympics is here. We've worked so hard to get the game into the Olympics. I think I've got what it takes to, you know, push for that. And whether that meant to say, you know, over a period of time, your position within the team changes. You, you're not always playing every minute of every game. You're, you're coming off the bench. And I, I would have been happy with that. I think you've got those transitions that happen. But mine was literally, it was a cliff face that I just, I dropped off. Um, and so that those kind of uh, opportunities were taken away. And, you know, I, it was a shame because it was the one, it was the first time I'd actually fully invested in sevens in terms of that whole what you guys have experienced now, which is where you've been for the last decade in that um, full-time space with sevens. Um, you know, and I think I could have added a lot of value in terms of supporting players coming through the game and, 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 and putting, keeping England where it was, but it wasn't to be. And I'll be honest, I never really knew how much it would affect me until about eight or nine years later. Um, where, you know, probably it took me to a few dark places say the least, um, from a, from an honest standpoint. And it, it caused a lot of friction in my life. I'm, I'm beyond it now, but I have to say, I think, um, the way in which it was done and what was taken away was, was pretty big at the time. Having given 12 years of your life to a game, uh, which during that time was always a bit seen as the back runner and et cetera. And, you know, even though we were playing premiership level rugby at the same time, um, it was just, it, it hit pretty hard, I think. Um, but that's not to down the conversation, fellas. It's life, isn't it? Like, I think as an athlete, there's so much being spoken about now. And I, you know, I, I, I can concur with where you guys have been at in terms of this year and the complete unknown. And, um, I guess I thought I was kind of prepared for what was to come because I was getting older and et cetera, but I just wasn't ready for that moment. And, I think we all need to be prepared for it. Why do you think that decision was made back then? I'll be honest with you. I have no idea. <laughs> I've, I still don't have real clarity over the decision. There was a lot of things going on. Um, contracts with players. It was a very unknown situation because obviously we just got to the end of the first year of this full-time environment and, it was question marked, are they still going ahead? Are they not? But there was contracts being signed. I was offered a contract. It was just being negotiated at the time, if that made sense. There were no, I don't think there were any bad this kind of conversations happening there. It all comes down to dollars and cents, but it wasn't going to be a deal breaker for me. Like my love for the game goes greater than that. Um, so in all honesty, I, I can be honest, the conversation I had was a, two-minute conversation in a car park to say that you'd never play for England again. 
And then about a month later, I was kind of asked for a bit more clarity. And I was told, um, didn't think I was good enough and wasn't scoring enough points anymore. And so I think even that hit pretty hard as well, because the genuinely speaking, I don't think I wasn't not good enough. <laughs> um, and I, I think I was the highest point scorer in the series that year. So quantifiably, not quite sure where all that came from, but, you know, some things you'll, you'll, you'll never know. And it lived with me for a long time. And I think post the seeing you guys do fantastic at the Olympics, it gave me a little bit of closure because I knew, but I'd have been 36. I'd never have gone past it, but if I could have been a part of it, that would have been a dream come true from what, what we'd progress through with the sevens. Man, I think j- just for what it's worth, I think your, your experience of it and, and hearing uh, your perspective on it, like it must've been incredibly difficult, I think as a player and trying to appreciate what that must've been like in that moment. Um, when you, cause you know, as you say in sport, we're used to things when they don't go our way. Because it's the game, right? You know, you, sometimes you lose a game when you think you should have won or you're injured and you, you want to play or whatever. But on that scale um, and for something to have, I, I, I like to, I think ends of things, like closing things is, is very important and quite a fragile process. And when it's not done right and when it doesn't happen right, um, regardless of what else was going on in your experience, you didn't experience it in a positive way. And that must have been incredibly difficult um i can sort of only only really imagine as a as a player have it been cut off in that way and as you say based on the experiences we've had recently we kind of had a bit of a taste of that it is and it's it's cutthroat and like you know i think um again if you come back to you know how we work with people and how we deal with people i think it's really important to have that awareness because there's certain things in life you have to accept right they're going to be hard this they're going to be hard to hear but that's that is life that's but the way in which people can share it with you and do it can also be supportive and i think for me i just never really understood the the, the full um picture of what the why if that made sense and for a long time yeah. that i think being told i wasn't good enough subconsciously had quite a big effect on me because when you're told you're not good enough ultimately in an arena that you believed that you'd actually succeeded in and being quite good at kind of puts a lot of question marks on yourself. Um, and I've done, it's not even so so done a lot of learning and, and, and you mature. Right. And I think, um, I wish I had that type of awareness back then that I do now, if that makes sense. And I think for all players and, and athletes, it's something I do quite a bit work with nowadays with, with athletes, young and old, to be able to have that perspective and awareness. I think sometimes we, you come into the game, you you're not really thinking about those things are you really you're kind of just living it you're subconsciously doing the right things goal setting all of those things that you do and I just realized how much looking back on it I it completely swayed what used to get me to where it got me to in terms of a rugby career and so I'm, I'm kind of going full circle now in terms of really trying to put myself back on that path if that makes sense I think it changed me as a person which is a shame but no, no regrets. You look back and go, it's, <clears throat> I had a fantastic time playing, right? Um, I can't knock that. <clears throat> and I've actually enjoyed some amazing years since. Like, I think the beauty of the game is where it takes you. And I've, I've had some unbelievable experiences post my playing career. And, and uh, <clears throat> hopefully they'll continue. One night and have one night, one night and have one night. What are some of those highlights then? 
if going back to to those playing days with England sevens, what were a couple of the standout moments for you? Obviously, apart from make, uh, playing with me, Beach, you don't have to say that. <laughs> I, I know. I know. When you send your CV out, you say you've put England sevens, played with Richard Carpenter. And seeing That's Rich fine. have his first cap. No, the very first one was is an obvious one. Really, it was winning Hong Kong for the first time, and that I think really that really changed the whole emphasis of the England sevens for us. It, it kind of um, before that it was we we had a good side but it was very much turn up a week before the tournament, do two or three training sessions and then fly to the tournament, et cetera, because we were so involved with our 15s at that stage. Um, and we were kind of hitting quarterfinals, but then probably bombing at quarterfinals and then winning plates. And then, you know, we just got it together and it was a tournament that, you know, how sometimes they just click, right? And that that winning Hong Kong for as an Englishman is there's no bigger opportunity in an event. And all of a sudden it just, it gave us a belief mechanism that yes, we actually, we, we can play this game and we can, we can mix it with the best, but also I think it turned heads in terms of where we could take England sevens. And so from my perspective, it's a big standout. And, you know, again, it, as a youngster winning Hong Kong at that time was also a big opportunity, was a, was a big memory moving through that. Um, highlights <clears throat> winning Hong Kong in 2006 as a personal one for me because of uh, winning scoring the winning try and kicking the kicking the goal so the, the context was in 2005 I missed the kick that would have put us through to the final against Fiji it kind of it skimmed the skimmed the upright but the wrong side unfortunately and we went on to lose an extra time so that the next year later we had the same game Fiji England and there was no way I was missing missing that one, <laughs> a living a living that memory twice. So I got my I got my vengeance. But again, just amazing for us. Um, one of the other ones that stands out for me is um, the opportunity to run out of Twickenham with my two sons, which I don't think many fathers get to do on a regular basis. Um, so it's kind of a sentimental one in terms of in that regard. Um, so there's a there's a there's a few I think winning a winning in New Zealand also goes is a highlight because again not many England teams go over and win in New Zealand so it's always a, a nice thing to be able to say you've done. All right, all right, Ben. Look, I'm I'm the one who brags here <laughs> in Seven Heaven. It's it's it's, it's quite a, it's it's an incredible highlight reel, and I just want to talk about Sevens being in a very precarious state at the moment for England for the world. In 2001, England finished seventh in the series. They were nowhere near a podium. And then you obviously went on that journey to give it real relevancy. And I'd be interested to know how you got to 2010 being such a successful team and then looking at the state of where it's in now, what steps you think need to be made to rebuild the game, certainly in this country? Wow. Um, well, I think what we realised back in the early days was that it was important to have a, with the way it worked and it's slightly different now, obviously, because you're all full time. So you, you have, you, you, everybody's training together, but what was successful to us was to have a core squad that we could then feed players in and out of, which we did have. We had, we had the likes of Simon Amor, Richard Horton, um, Rob Thrillby and uh, a few others. Henry became a bit of a core member as well that, 
that meant to say if you had like the makings of a side, you could add other players in who were playing for performing well in the Premiership and X factors, and and we we had a recipe for success. As we moved through that, um, I think we also we had a better understanding of the game. There was more professional. We, we we were one of the first teams to use GPS. To be fair, back in two thousand and three. <laughs> which is quite a long time ago now when I say that. <laughs> Don't even knew what we were doing with it, to be honest with you. <laughs> We've got a lot more information now. Um, but I think we started to add that kind of real professional focus and, and, and the extra one percenters and the detail. And I think what changed that and what obviously was realised that when, in, when sevens then became an Olympic sport, things needed more focus and and players it was hard to transition between two games like I, I and you know the attrition on the body etc so I think it was obvious statement go full time and I think that's been a fantastic transition for the game and it's it's made it more competitive throughout the series because there's there's a lot stronger you know there used to be a top four or five that were really strong and then a slightly lower a lot that weren't quite as whereas now there's you know it, on its day anybody can be anybody in that series currently which I think it is what you want. You want a competitive series. And I think, uh, you know, you guys took that through with, with the way in which you achieved the silver medal at the, the Olympics and genuinely speaking, it needs to be carrying on the momentum it's got. And it's such a shame with COVID that it has had that effect. And I really hope that beyond it, people can see that it's a game that doesn't just support people's livelihoods. It's a game that over the last 15 years, has probably grown rugby in in all areas of the world than any other part of the, the game today, which I think is really important because having composed, also having coached, you know, what you'd say is lesser graded teams, you can see that over a short period of time, you can actually make them genuinely competitive in the sevens world. Whereas in 15s, it's going to take that much longer. There's a lot more of a training age to be had, et cetera. So, you know, my, my, my two cents worth there is it's, um, it is disappointing, but hopefully we can keep the momentum and, you know, it, it gets itself back on track. What purpose do you think Sevens needs to serve though? Because we have this discussion quite a lot on the pod that it strokes for folks depending on what country you come from. So the All Black Sevens feed a lot of players into the All Blacks proper, whereas that's non-existent in England. It's purely four sevens and seven success and you don't see a lot of crossover between the premiership clubs coming into England sevens now that's for sure which was very very different in your day so what do you think sevens purpose should be should it be a an introductory game should it be a feeder for 15 sides or should rugby be looking to make it an entertainment product and and jazz it up with jeopardy conversions like in the Bermuda tens with the boys the other day did you guys kick any I was I wasn't allowed. I would be. I was first up there. I know. I said I played with Bengalians. I know how to kick a rugby ball. Just let me on. They didn't <laughs> let me kick any. We had to hold Chippy back every time there was a conversion. I'd only do it if I was fresh. Come off the bench, halfway line, straight in front. Got the legs. Knock it down. You wouldn't knock it back, really, would you? Tactically, you've got to go for it. Hundred percent. You got to back yourselves. Um, look, I think it's really interesting, and I think to to answer your question, I think it actually still got the the recipe for all of it. I think. Sevens as a game, um, it's no doubt it's proven itself on, on, on the world stage in terms of how competitive it is, the, the, the atmosphere it creates for the crowd uh, and, the, you know, the, what it can draw and, and actually the, 
the growth it can create in the game. I, I do genuinely think that it's um, with where 15s is going as well, that it's probably going to be able to reconnect more because 15s went through its own different pathway and everybody sees people as different. You know, you're, you're different. You're either 7s or 15s. Personally for myself, if I answer the question, what are you? I always say I'm a rugby player because I was as comfortable on a 15s field as I was on a 7s field. You just, certain players can adapt it differently to others. And I think, so yes, there should still be opportunity to, for players to be able to experience it. But if they get picked up in seven, in 15s, it shouldn't be a deal breaker. And I think you had, um, I never played with him, but it's McConaughey, right? He's playing at Bath and he's doing fantastically well. And I, I, I attribute that to probably his time with the England sevens team, which has nurtured his person, personal being as a professional rugby player, playing in front of crowds that you don't often get to play in front of and, and being able to, you know, perform, take that performance onto a 15s pit. Rather than us playing against each other, we should, we should support both sides of the game. And ultimately, the person that really is the important part is the athlete, right? The player. And it's the opportunities that creates their livelihood. And it's a short time where you're able to do that. True that. Preach, True preach. That. Preach. <laughs> uh, it's a really interesting thought as well about how you say they might actually 7s and 15s become more closely aligned. Because so I think more often than maybe even a few years ago, you're watching a game of 15s and you think, oh, that guy would be pretty handy on a 7s field. Or that guy be, and, and you might be talking about a winger, but you might be talking about a back rower in a second row. Whereas one o'clock back, six, seven, eight years, you probably wouldn't have been saying that as about as many, certainly not forwards in a 15s game anyway. Um, and that's what you're saying about the, the type of athlete you're getting in 15s now. Uh, the emphasis on the ability to change direction, the pace, um, you know, the athleticism in a, in a different sense from what it was before, where it was a bit more... Uh, linear, maybe certainly for some of the, the bigger boys, um, then that will probably create more crossover. And it'd be interesting to see how that, how that goes. Um, there's, there's still a the big, big problem for sevens, which is the commercial side. As you said, it's a marketable product. We just need to package it up and sell it properly. I think, especially, I think in today's day and age, where people are loving that short, sharp focus within any kind of environment, it's a it's a quick glimpse at something, right? It supports where we are in the world today, and so. <clears throat> genuinely speaking, I think if they can actually get that part right, sevens will stay a very successful game. Um, you know, I would question, I'll, I'll be a bit controversial as to whether people want to see it as successful as 15s. Um, having played both, and my answer to that is, I hope so, because I think it's only healthy for the game. What do you mean by people not wanting it to be as successful as 15s? I think noticeably when I was playing, there was definitely a feeling that people didn't want sevens to outgrow 15s because 15s was the main product for rugby, 15s. And my thought process there was it never would. You know, the World Cup is obviously the mecca of rugby um, and it would be for any player, but other opportunities arose from it. Sevens creating an Olympic opportunity. That's a massive opportunity itself for any athlete, right? Hence, they would cross over. 15s players wanting to have a shot at it. And I just think that that stigmatism's got to go and that sevens should be sitting alongside, not below. We always used to feel down here, which was a shame because, geez, we work pretty hard and you guys know exactly what you've got to do to be able to perform at that level. And I think they should sit here because people can genuinely jump in and out. And, you know, take Chester Colby, for instance. Look at that guy. He was formidable on a 15s field and now he's a World Cup winner. Sorry, on a sevens field, now he's a World Cup winner. And I think... 
why not Chesing Colby into this year have a crack if it was an opportunity at an Olympic medal? I'd say he probably will. I reckon he probably will. You, you said he was shit, Mitch. <laughs> Mate. There aren't many people I'd rather uh, not be defending than him. His feet are ridiculous. But thanks for that, Bernsey. Oh, Mitch, you do yourself a disservice. I'd back you against Cheslin any day, my friend. Uh, look, to bookend things rather nicely and a question to close. You've dipped your toe into a number of coaching waters around the world, Sri Lanka, China. You've done some bits and bobs in the state and you mentioned that really the dream would be to coach England one day. Are you able to realise that dream or are there some hatchets that still need to be buried from your previous relationship with them? I don't know. I mean, I, it's not to say I had a bad relationship with the RFU um, in that regard. And uh, you, they are a business. Sometimes you don't agree with certain things. I don't think I have a, a bad rapport. I think in certain regards, it, it's timing and a place for people. And for me, I think I was, I was disappointed as well at the time that I wasn't maybe seen as somebody that could have taken on that opportunity and, and grown out of the playing into a, coaching support role and that be a transition for me um when i was there it would it, it would it probably would be harder now but it's not to say that it, it's not the case and i think it's again a lot of these things go down to your interviewing etc and i think if you've taken on merit and for who you are right now the past shouldn't become part of it if that makes sense um we all carry past history but it's it's more important as to who you are currently is i think is the key um and so hopefully they'd, they'd look at that because i think also for me and this is something for you guys is you're young and eager as a coach and you you want to pass on all that knowledge and information and all the rest of it but you actually realize as you become a coach <laughs> that uh there's there's a lot of learning to be done in in the nuances of big being a good coach um and I think my pathway has, has certainly highlighted that to me quite a lot. And, uh, you know, I think I'd honestly say I'd probably make a better coach now than what I did 10 years ago. So I think if the opportunity arose, I'd do a better job of it now. Nice, Beach. Nice, Beach. It's been an absolute pleasure. Welcome in seventh heaven anytime. No worries, guys. One night and heaven, one night, one Genuine legend of the game. No one scored more points. Loads of wisdom, loads of history. And apparently there's a bit of a story about Las Vegas about you in 2011, Mitch. Well, I wasn't there in 2011, so the dates are off. But um, I, I don't actually know what if, he, if he's confusing me with someone else. Because genuinely, I had a great night in Vegas. It was my second tournament. And but I didn't do anything wrong. But it was amazing because we got treated to basically a free bar at the top of the, uh, at the Palms Hotel um looking out over the strip i just thought what is this life i've fallen into here got to play rugby for two weekends on the trot and now getting treated to this sort of night out um but i don't i don't know whether he's i don't know whether he's confusing me with someone else i know this sounds like the the, the biggest cover-up story around but generally there's, there's nothing in it there's no spice mitch thompson or something <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, he's got the dates wrong, and I think that he's confusing with someone else. You are one of the slipperiest deals <laughs> in the game, aren't you, Tom Mitchell? <laughs> Stop trying to tarnish my reputation. Good to chat to him. Um, obviously, legend of the game, but you can see how much he's like 
without trying to sound patronising, growing up, like it is um, his whole ethos and the way he's thinking about the game now, being an experienced coach, as, as he said towards the end of the the chat, um, it's just resounding through with everything he says. Like um, the way he's thinking, I'm really, I'm really, I really enjoyed listening to him and like good chat with a with a good lad. It's cool because I it generally I used to watch him on TV. And like he was the man, he was Mr. Sevens. He was the only he was the only guy I knew in in World Sevens uh, when I was younger. Um, and I think there would have been a lot of people like that, that. And he kind of, to a large extent, I think was the was the name in Sevens that helped spread it and helped grow it in that time. Um, so hopefully he can take he, he recognises that and, and feels like that was a was an achievement, uh, despite his sort of own career in the game being cut short as he as he described it. Yeah, I mean, you two have done incredible things playing for England. But genuinely, I think there's a huge proportion of people who follow Sevens or are aware of Sevens or are loose rugby fans. And you mention Sevens and they think Ben Gollings, or they say Ben Gollings. He's still synonymous with Sevens and England Sevens because of all that he did. 100%. Work rate hasn't gone unrecognised. He deserves that, um, that memory and rec- recognition for all he's done for the game uh, when it first became professional. And a points tally that will never get beaten like that. That is and, and ridiculous. And uh, Mitch, I've got to say, Chip and I are real proud of you, the way that you held yourself together there, because we know how much you hate him because you're never going to get near his points tally. 1,059 away from you. So that was, it was a real professional performance. Yeah, 100%. I mean, obviously you've been playing like you're trying to catch him up with not passing and the glue hands for the past 10 years. But um, Mitch, like, yeah, real professional performance. And I'd endorse you on LinkedIn if you put professionalism now. Hang on, hang on. So you're, say, hang on. So you're saying that I I'm not going to catch you. I'm not going to get a thousand more points in my career. You don't think? No. <laughs> <laughs> Right, let's stick a fork in this cloud because this pod is done. Boys, up to anything interesting this week? Back into training um, tomorrow for the rest of the week. Big game against Northampton. The lads have got, I am not playing. Um, but looking forward to supporting him, doing a, being the best version of me for the rest of the week. You're inspiring, Chip. I love it. Uh, I'll be taking some of that inspiration and putting it into, I don't know what, for the rest of the week. Well, Chip, you might not be at Franklin's Gardens, but if you look real, real close on the telly near the dugouts, there'll be a guy with a headset and that guy will be me. So you could get to clap eyes on me and just check out the hairline that you hear so much about on your celestial one-stop pod for all things rugby. But from all of us up here in the clouds in seventh heaven, it is adios. See you, Bye. Bye.